This is News from the Peak. I'm Joe Mamlin. Well, the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted a lot of risks within our communities. Sometimes we like to think of an experience like this as a great equalizer. After all, the virus can't tell if you're rich or if you're poor or where you come from or who you are. But not all people are experiencing this in the same way. Some of us, even if we do get sick, are still relatively lucky. We have resources, we have income, we have food, we have a safe home to live in. Well, not everyone has that. To talk about one important impact of this crisis, we're happy to welcome our guest today. Ron Haskins is a senior fellow and co-director of the Center on Children and Families at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the Cabot Family Chair in Economic Studies. Together with his colleague Morgan Welch, a project coordinator on children and families, also at the Brookings Institution, published an article about the impact this crisis is having on our child welfare system. The article talks about how this crisis has created a perfect storm of factors that will lead to an increase in unreported cases of abuse and neglect. Many states are reporting significant drops in reports of child abuse, some as high as 70% decreases in March. While in the face of such economic hardship and unprecedented stress, this is almost certainly a result of children being removed from the places where abuse is most often noticed and reported. Today, Maureen Life speaks with Ron about the article, about the difficulties that the program faces and about the idea that this may be an opportunity to rethink and restructure child welfare at its core. It's gonna be a great show, so stay with us and we'll be right back. Ron, so much for joining our um, podcast today, News from the Peak. Um, I have to say, I've just been such a big fan of yours, and um, you've been such a great contributor to human services over the years. Um, what I like is that I've always felt like you were passionate, and even when we didn't agree, you pushed me to think in different ways. And um, so I'm excited to have you on today. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I was excited that you agreed because I had been working on a project in Colorado, um, a child welfare grant, and we've been talking a lot about COVID and the impact on child welfare. And I was Googling some articles and of course, Ron Haskins name was at the top of the list uh, with Morgan. And you wrote an article about COVID-19 and I was wondering um, kind of what prompted that or uh, why, you, why you all felt compelled to write that article. Well, Morgan and I were concerned about, you know, it's obvious to anybody who knows about child welfare that when you have communications with teachers uh, and preschool teachers cut off as they are now, 
and other you know doctors and others as well. Uh, that is a main source of information about uh, maltreatment of children. So we were concerned about it, uh, and there were articles here and there about it. Uh, and there was one kind of dramatic case in uh, uh, in Texas where a child was, you know, was seriously hurt uh, because there was no way to report it until it was almost too late. I, I think the child survived. But anyway, so we were concerned about it. So we decided uh, that we would gather information and write an article about it that we can put on, on the Brookings website, which, which we did. Uh, Morgan did a lot of the work on it. Uh, and I was very happy that she was the first author of the thing. So we're, we were really happy to do it. Uh, also, we were pleased to do it because this topic is so important. It's always important. For some reason, um, the child protection issues seem to get backseat for most um, social service issues. Uh, it's a smaller total program uh, than many of the other programs. There are relatively few articles about it in the media. <clears throat> so we were especially glad at this crucial time uh, to be able to write something and bring attention to it, uh, which I you know, we've at least somewhat achieved that goal. Uh, so those are the, that's an overview of the reasons we did it. Why isn't there more attention on this in child welfare and the, the, the drastic cutting and reporting, do you think? Well, one thing I think, I, I'm not sure this is truly a reason, but it's, a, it, it's always been uh, primary in my mind that this is a, it's a very difficult, depressing subject. Uh, and it's hard to talk about situations in which parents and other uh, people who are close to the family abuse or neglect children. Uh, so I think that's, that, that's one thing. The same thing as I mentioned a minute ago, it's a fairly, in the scheme of social programs, it's, it's not a huge program. Uh, and I think states would just as soon not talk about it uh, unless they absolutely have to because they face a, a lot of difficulty. And if there are, if there are big problems in social welfare, especially the people that are, you know, that run the system, mostly they're, they don't have much to gain and they have a lot to lose. Because if there's a death or a serious uh, injury to children, then the media gets a hold of it and they, they write articles that are not flattering at all for social services. So nobody has much to gain from it. And I think part of it also is it's very difficult to run uh, a child welfare system. We have what I think is a reasonable approach. We have reporting. Uh, we have mandatory reporters. Uh, they can be, they're technically in violation of criminal statutes uh, if they don't um, report uh, instances of abuse that they know about but those are rarely enforced. Uh, and even if you find out about abuse, how do you find out if it's true? If you investigate, which of course, uh, Department of Social Services 
does, and some of those investigators are very professional, and they find out a lot that a normal uh, person would not find out. Uh, but still, uh, being able to separate an injury that was accidental uh, from one that was intentionally or was inflicted as a result of uh, parents or to determine neglect, uh, which is far more prevalent uh, than abuse, uh, is very difficult. So the system has a lot of problems in detecting when abuse or neglect occur and a lot of problems in confirming it. Uh, so that, you know, the, the whole system faces some serious problems. I agree. You, and you talk about in your article, which it really struck home for me, and I've thought about it a lot since I read it. And, and you say that there's a conflict in the two priorities in child welfare, child protection versus family preservation. And I, I think that you are articulating, I think, sometimes what that rub is between the two priorities. And sometimes we're talking about protecting children at all costs. And other times we're talking about family preservation and keeping the kids with the parents, you know, if, if at all possible. And so I think that just that one line in the article really struck home for me. And why do you think that those two priorities are hard to reconcile? Yes, I, I agree with you. I think there is, those priorities are difficult to reconcile. Uh, and it, this is one of the most fundamental problems uh, that the child protection system faces. On the one hand, we really want to find out if there's abuse or neglect taking place because in extreme circumstances, a child's life could be at stake. On the other hand, we don't want to signal uh, that a child is being subjected to abuse and neglect if it's not true. And one of the most important outcomes of a finding of abuse or neglect is that the child is likely to be removed from its home. And there now is a, this has swung back and forth uh, uh, over the years, but there now is a, I would call it a very strong movement to keep the child with the biological family as long as possible until you're just absolutely sure uh, that abuse or neglect is occurring and that you can't stop it uh, from outside the home. So we tend to be more patient now um, and to set up other mechanisms to check more frequently, to have ways to find uh, check with other members of the community, with, with school teachers and so forth, to make sure that we can keep an eye on the family. And in addition, in some ways, the essence of what's happened in the last, de last decade or so is to intervene with the family and help them solve their problem. And you can't do that very well if the family feels like it's under relentless pressure uh, to stop the, being bad to their children. So many social workers have learned to negotiate that problem uh, and to be close to the family uh, and be accepted by the family as wise advisors who have the family interest and the child interest and the parents interest at heart. And they learn uh, to be, to support the, not just the child, but the whole family. And that's a very difficult thing to do, but uh, I think more and more social workers have learned to do that over the years. 
one thing that you talk about as well that we're we're seeing in our grant work um, in Colorado, we're working to expand peer support groups for families. And there's a whole litany of services that caseworkers and the courts are trying to make accessible to parents to kind of support them. And you talk about child welfare being really reactionary. So by time they've entered the child welfare system, these problems are pretty, you know, are pretty expansive. There's, you know, long histories of substance abuse, homelessness, poverty. Is there, have, have you thought about or looked at ways to be less reactionary, but yet not be kind of in family's business before we have authority to do so? Or We have thought a great deal about that. Uh, and the conclusion that I have come to, I hope that this conclusion is not permanent, but the conclusion I've come to is that this is a problem that we always have. We will not think of an answer that solves the problem permanently. Uh, it's just something we're going to face up to. And you, you've mentioned a couple things here that I think we ought to just talk about for a minute. Um, one of them is uh, that the it's very difficult to get the information that we need, not just from the parents, uh, but from the schools, uh, from other members of the community to find out a way that we can pl plot a strategy that would help uh, preserve the child's well-being, both by protecting, making it less likely, making a child less likely to be uh, to be neglected or abused. And those are extremely difficult to resolve under any circumstances, but under the current circumstances, even more so. Another point I want to mention in this connection is that uh, the courts have a very important role to play in child protection. Uh, in, the, in the end, uh, usually at the recommendation of the Department of Social Services, they make decisions about whether it's safe to leave a child at home and whether they have to remove the child and put the child in another setting and so forth. Many important decisions like that that have to be at least confirmed uh, by the courts. And of course, the courts are not operating at full capacity now. And that's another big problem in the current situation uh, that a major source, a major component of the system uh, is missing in action, so to speak now. So that's another issue we have to face up to and figure out how to resolve it. The courts are not able to step up to the role uh, that they normally play uh, in these difficult circumstances. Well, and you raised the courts, and that's my background, having worked at the judicial branch in Colorado for 13 years. And we're seeing, you know, the courts operating on a really emergency type basis, trying to do some virtual hearings, um, trying to, you know, do status conferences virtually. Um, but yes, having difficulty kind of managing caseloads, you know, without having a courtroom or a courthouse to, to have those. Um, so you mentioned the courts, and I'm wondering, you know, these combination of the reports going down in addition to the courts, are there ways that states that, that you all have looked at, are states handling this to try and, and do outreach to the public? Are there other ideas about how states can kind of combat these two issues on, on reporting? Yes, I think the, the um, I don't know how 
I don't know whether the courts are necessarily doing a good job of this. I'm not saying that they are not, uh, but the public has a very important role to play here and they have a very important role to play at all times. Uh, the public is important to making sure that we know about these cases and making sure that they can bring information to the officials and even to participate in court proceedings if that becomes necessary. Uh, even that is difficult to do now though because fewer people are out and about in their neighborhoods. Uh, they certainly are less likely to be um, around the public schools and around the preschool programs. So that way to make sure that the system is in full operation uh, also is at a disadvantage at this time. But the public definitely has a very important role to play. Uh, and this is something that the Departments of Social Services uh, should, should try to be make as important as possible. And there should be public service announcements there should be training programs. It's a very good idea for departments of social service to work with the YMCA, YWCA, uh, church groups, and many, many other types of civic organizations about a role that they can play. And there's some, uh, some civic organizations that want to play an active role, uh, and they are uh, quite willing uh, to do so and to do so over a long period of time and to help their members develop expertise. And they can play a very important role in making the child welfare system work better, especially under the current circumstances where, they're, where the system faces so many disadvantages. So with all of the issues that we've talked about with COVID and child welfare, do you think, I mean, are, are these problems were existing beforehand, so are they just more prevalent now? And do you think that we're going to learn something going forward that we can make systemic changes to the to the child welfare system? Well, I think it's, okay, my short answer is probably not. I hope I'm wrong about that. One of the, one of the things about the current situation that bothers me the most is that the child welfare system was in the midst of one of its biggest reforms ever uh, it passed, Congress passed legislation two years ago that, that created fundamental changes in the system. And probably the single most Im important char characteristic of those changes was to make the system, you use the term reactive, to make the system more proactive and to help the system become more aggressive in finding out what the problems are that these kids are facing, what the problems are that the family is facing. Um, for example, it's, it's almost never the case that you have a fine family with no serious problems of any type, and they either abuse or neglect their children. That just, it, it does not happen that way. These families, these families face a lot of problems. Uh, and many of the problems that they face, hunger, um, stress within the family, sometimes homelessness. Uh, these are uh, medical problems that the parents face. And then, of course, problems between the parents. Most of the parents, uh, quite a big majority, are single mother families. Uh, and they have relationships 
other than their original husband. And those are often difficult relationships. So there, there are many problems uh, that these families face. And if you're going to have an effective child protection system, you need to be able to help the families with these other problems that are not necessarily directly the cause of child abuse and neglect. They contribute, maybe, uh, but they're not necessarily cause. And certainly, they are a big part of a solution. So those are things that the child protection system has to learn to deal with. And that's part of the reason that this federal legislation passed uh, two years ago and is now being implemented. And another very important part that's not unrelated to this first part is that the system, like many American social policies, uh, wants to become more related to evidence of success. And so we have a, a, quite a big literature uh, that includes lots of very good uh, empirical studies about ways to intervene with a family. We, we especially have studies of the relationship between the mother and the child uh, that can help the mother have a positive impact on the child's development and can have an impact on reducing the tension and the difficulty between the mother and the child, which happens in many of these cases. And we're just beginning to, not just beginning, but we're advancing these studies more than in the past. And we're getting more and more studies that are shown to be effective. Uh, so this field, this part of the field of evidence-based policy is advancing pretty rapidly. And we can expect it in the years ahead. Uh, and I don't mean a decade from now, I mean, starting now and developing uh, uh, at a fairly rapid clip over the next, you know, 10 years or so, we're going to have more and more programs that will be effective at helping families uh, do a better job of rearing their children and minimizing abuse and neglect. Which is an interesting point, because when I think about legislation and then I think about the funding and you do talk about funding in the article, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the state of funding for child welfare and if you have any um, thoughts about that. The big programs we now spend, not counting the programs like food stamps and Medicaid and others that are broader programs and are designed uh, to serve uh, kids, yes, kids that are in the child protection system um, and families that are suspected of abuse or neglect, but way beyond that as well. But the programs that are designed specifically for abuse and neglect, um, they're called, the biggest ones are Title IV-E uh, and, and Title IV-B. That's probably boring to most of your listeners, but uh, <laughs> those are the those are the big programs. And those are the ones that are specifically designed uh, to, to, to finance child protection. And those programs, plus a few smaller programs that are associated with those bigger programs, is $29 billion a year, a little bit more than $29 billion a year. So that may seem like a lot of money, but given a problem of this magnitude, um, I have never been of the opinion that, oh, yeah, that's plenty of money. We don't have to worry about getting more money. So it's a lot of money. I think we could do a better job in spending it, uh, but we're always going to need more money. And then the second thing is that under the new the three tranches of emergency legislation that Congress has passed, uh, there will be additional funds 
uh, for child protection. Those funds are quite limited. And I think, I definitely believe we need more money there. Uh, we should make sure that if we pass additional legislation, that there, there is money specifically set aside, uh, designated for child protection issues that is given to the states specifically to address these issues and with an accountability system that shows, uh, I know this is amazing and you would never suspect this, the <laughs> states will actually do things with money that the federal government didn't necessarily authorize. Uh, and I would want to do everything possible to make sure that this money is actually devoted to these kids and to their families, because that's perhaps the area, it's one of the areas of greatest need. Uh, so hopefully there'll be more money coming in. There's already a fair amount of money there. Uh, and I think with money is not the biggest need, but it is a big need. And uh, I think with more money, we'll be able to do a better job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'd love to see that some of those funds go to kind of those preventative services to support families so that they don't become homeless and then therefore neglect and um, have a, a nice overlap there. And like you said, talking about the evidence-based practices as well. So Ron, you've been doing this for a while, um, a good bit of time. Do you, you know, when you kind of look back on where the system was and and it where it is today in 2020 do you feel like we're headed in a good direction do you feel worried what are your thoughts yes i definitely feel we're headed in a good direction i think that the legislation uh that passed two years ago indicates that between the administration and congress uh there was a lot of wisdom involved in writing the legislation um frankly i was a little surprised that Congress would pass a bill with such, you know, with such a vision of the future and that could, uh, had the potential to have such an important impact. My greatest concern, and look, I'm an old guy. I'll, I'll be, I'll still be writing about this business and doing research, but I'm, I'll be, I won't be involved directly as I have been in the past. I think our biggest problem is we don't have enough talented people uh, in the field. I think that's that could be our greatest need is to attract more young people to social work uh, and to working with poor families and to helping them learn how to deal with poverty and homelessness and so forth uh, and to solve a number of problems, by far not the least of which is child protection. So that's the issue that I'm the most concerned about. We have money and several pieces of federal legislation that gives money to the states uh, to in, improve uh, services, to, to, to increase uh, the training of social workers, but that's an area where we really need to do better than we've done in the past. We need to attract better people and we need to train them better. Yeah, and, and treat it as if it, it truly is a profession. And I hear young people talk about wanting to get into social work, but understanding that they're, you know, the burnout rate, the pay, usually, you know, you have to get a master's degree. And then when you get out of all of those expenses, then you, you can barely, you, you're, you know, on borderline homeless yourself. So it's not, they don't make it very attractive. 
Yes, what we need to get is we need to get families where one spouse or another is making a lot of money and the other is passionately devoted to social services. Uh, so they don't have to worry too much about money. Money is not, people in social services are not going to get wealthy. Right. Uh, we still, we could improve their uh, income more than we have in the past, and that would help. Uh, there's just no doubt uh, that if you pay more money, you will get better people. Right. So we, we should do that. Uh, but the fact that we don't pay uh, a huge amount of money to people should not allow us to make the excuse, well, you can't get anything done unless, you know, you pay 80 or 90 or 100,000 a year. I just don't believe that. And there are a lot of good people in the system now that make, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 a year. Uh, and we need more people like that. Yeah, it, it seems to me just in kind of the outside of this world, though, it feels a little bit like money and, you know, being able to sustain yourself in that profession is one thing, but it's also the training and ongoing support, you know, and their, their caseloads are heavy and they deal with heavy issues and they're not always supported like they could be in, in the burnout rate. Even if you were making great money, the burnout rate is just high. Yes, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, and that brings up an issue about uh, the, the, what are the factors that prevent social workers from doing a better job? And one of the answers is that they have to go to court. In fact, they have to spend a fair amount of time in court. And the courts are very inefficient. Some places are better than others, but it's not unusual for a social worker to spend two, three, four, five hours waiting to go to court with a case and then it gets canceled and put off till the next day or next week or some future date. You know, that's just not acceptable. We have to figure out how to keep that from happening. Social workers' time is extremely valuable. I think the judges understand that, but if the case is back up, you know, they don't take strong action. So yeah. that, the, the system needs to figure out answers to these questions. The system needs to be more efficient as well and to find good ways to make sure that social workers don't spend three hours waiting to present a case in court. So if you were granted uh, a magic wand and you um, couldn't wish for more wishes, uh, what would you, what is your hope? And I think I might know the answer, but um, what would be your wish for the child welfare system? The first one would be better leadership in the system. The state directors, the county directors, the top echelon of leadership uh, would be better trained, more experienced, uh, um, and have more knowledge of the situations that have worked all around the country. I would make it clear right now that I think I have not met all of the leaders but we've had several meetings at Brookings where we've had leaders from around the country. Uh, and we visited several really impressive places like Pittsburgh, Allegheny County, um, in Lansing, Michigan, and other places. And they do have great leadership. And there really are great leaders in the system. But we need more. We need a lot more. 
So that's, that's the very first thing. I would want even better leaders than we have, and I would want even better support for those leaders. And, a, and especially I would want stronger support from the political leaders in the, in the state and the county uh, in which these uh, child welfare leaders operate. The second thing I would want uh, is a real commitment to following the evidence. I think evidence can help us a lot in developing and then selecting the best programs that have the most promise of success uh, in helping kids do better and in helping families do better with their kids. Those are the two biggest things in my view. Thanks again to Ron Haskins and to Maureen for being on the show with us today. And wherever you happen to be listening, please hit the subscribe button because we have a lot more great episodes coming up. We'd love to hear from you and get your ideas and your feedback. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. News from the Peak is a project of Grace Peak Strategies and is produced by Maureen Life, David Ram, Robert Riddle, and me. You can find the podcast and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. You can learn more about us at gracepeakstrategies.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Grace Peak, and we're easy to find on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This was News from the Peak. I'm Joe Mamlin. Thanks for joining us. Well, tell me what your future does hold. What are you going to do in retirement? Because I, if anyone's ever looked at your resume, I don't think you're going to be just hanging on a beach. I am going to be writing. Uh, I, I'm going to, my, my thought is that I'm going to spend much more time uh, working with, consulting with, um, nonprofit organizations, especially ones devoted uh, to kids. Any travel plans once where the travel ban is lifted or anything interesting? My wife and I have had plans for the last three years to travel several places and we haven't been able to make any of the trips. So we have we don't haven't made real plans but we're going to do more traveling than we've done in the past. We've been married 35 years and we've hardly traveled at all except out of our driveway. <laughs> well, good. I hope that I hope that you make those plans happen and that um, you take more than one or two days off because I think that you deserve it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take that to heart. And in fact, as soon as this conversation is over, I'm gonna run downstairs and I'm gonna tell my wife what you said. <laughs> tell her that Maureen is making making us take a trip. <laughs> mm-hmm.